shatters the frown of the nations in the thoughts of their hearts. God takes the powerful from their thrones and lifts up the lowly. God fills the hungry with good things and sends the rich away empty. You're listening to Faith and Reason 360. Support for this program comes from the Joe and Louise Cook Foundation, Barbara Winland Director, and the D.L. Dykes Jr. Foundation, promoting critical thinking and advocating for justice in our world. I am Devo Dykes. And I'm Ann Phelps. Welcome to all of our listening audience. Um, this is our third episode of Jesus versus Caesar with our special guest, your Grieger, and also uh, hosting along with Anne and me is David Dyke. I thought you were going to forget me. I wouldn't forget <laughs> you. No way. Um, Dr. Rieger is uh, the Distinguished Professor of Theology and Cal Turner Chancellor's Chair in Wesleyan Studies in the Divinity School and Graduate Department of Religion at Vanderbilt University. He's also a director of the newly founded program in Religion and Justice at Vanderbilt Divinity School. Welcome, Jorg. It's great to be here. Thank you. Thank you, Yay. Thank you, Anne. Yeah, so before we jump into uh, what would be the third chapter of Dr. Rieger's book, Jesus versus Caesar, um, we want to recap a little bit some of what we've been talking about in the previous chapters. Um, Dr. Rieger opens the book with a quotation uh, making a distinction between the, the religion of Caesar and the religion of, of the God of Jesus. And uh, one religion he names as uh, a malignant religion, whereas the other one is a, a loving and beneficial religion. Life-giving. Life-giving. That's the word I'm looking for. And I'm really interested in that, in, in that separation. Uh, will you say some more about, about ways that are life-giving and ways that are malignant? So one of the problems when we talk about religions is often we talk about religions as ideas, as sort of metaphysical images of the world. What I want to do is I want us to talk about what's actually happening. What What is it that religious religions are doing? What is the outcome of it? And so here I think we have to talk about a long history of Christianity having created a lot of suffering. Earlier I talked about how Christianity has actually contributed to killing people. You get that in the Crusades. You get that, you know... Later on in the conquest of the Americas, you get you get that at other points. Uh, Christians supporting war, Christians supporting fascism. We've seen it all. Right. Um, malignant, though, is a bigger term. It's not just, you know, specifically killing, but it's also creating ways of life that do not care about others. So mm -hmm. the religion that preaches love of neighbor very oftentimes ignores its neighbors. Uh, it, it doesn't step in when there's uh, suffering or in some ways, it, it justifies the suffering by saying it is God's will, or this is uh, self-produced uh, you know, evil, or you know, people who are starving, people who are uh, dying of hunger. Uh, I've heard people of faith say, you know, they're just lazy. They're they're mm -hmm. not doing what they're supposed to be doing. All of those are mechanisms of a malignant religion that does not help. It blames. Uh, it produces 
division, it produces hatred. And so um, that religion has to give an account of itself. I think this is why a lot of people have been turning their backs to religion. A lot of younger people in our country have, not because they don't believe in uh, God or even in some of the traditions that we have, but because they have seen a very dismal track record of Christianity. And today we see Christians, you know, uh, backing up hatred, racism, you know, homophobia, uh, fear of immigrants and all of that. Uh, Those things are not healthy and I don't think they help anybody except the few who are ultimately um, controlling this world. And so so this is the malignant religion that I'm worried about. Yes, I I don't want to name the church, uh, but a very prominent church I know of in a major city in the U.S. I look at the material that comes out of the church, and there's some fine people I know in that congregation, but the thrust of the activity, the day-to-day activity in this large congregation is all the courses you can take at the church on uh, meditation and reflection and yoga and all those kinds of things. In other words, the whole self-help movement is the life of the ministry of the church. So, and we've all participated in that stuff, but it's like because of the size of this institution, and so many decent people in it, it's like that whole misdirected understanding about what it's about in the first place. You know, it makes me think, um, as far as malignant religions go, right, you saw, you talked about the the racism and the xenophobia and the fear of immigrants that, that just doesn't resonate with the gospel. But um, it also makes me think of the prosperity gospel, right? This idea that, mm-hmm. that the the gospel of Jesus is intended to bring in wealth. If you pray correctly and you say the right words to God and you behave in these certain, certainly endorsed purifying ways that God will reward you with finances. Um, and I think that, that that leads us to this idea that you do talk about in this chapter, the danger of, of materialism, um, mm-hmm. which you take on a, a, in a really new way. Um, and so I'm curious, um, when you look back at the ministry and life of Jesus, um, what relationship did Jesus have to that materialism? Was Jesus preaching the prosperity gospel, I guess, is sort of the first layer of this conversation. Mm. So one of the big things that Jesus is preaching in various places is this idea of good news to the poor. Mm-hmm. And right. of course, right. what what is good news to the poor, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, some people might think good news to the poor is preaching to them that they will go to heaven after they die. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, that's not all that much of a news to a poor person, but good news <laughs> to the poor might actually be, well, to no longer be poor right. in the end. Right. Uh, now, this this sort of gives gives you a little bit of a focus on what malignant religion is yeah. actually all about. It is uh, the kind of religion that does not preach good news to the mm-hmm. poor by either sort of preaching, uh, you know, you'll go to heaven after you die, pie in the sky, mm-hmm. and so forth, or uh, by you know not doing what it really takes for poor people to be no longer poor. So, so take charity for example. Uh, right. Charity right. is something that helps poor people to live another day, and and that's fine. I don't want to and stay that. poor. Yeah. Uh, but stay poor. So, right. so the problem here is, uh, it's 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 again malignant in the sense that it does not really preach good news to the poor. As as I said at one point, 
good news to the poor is not that you will be the recipient of charity, mm-hmm. but that you will no longer be poor. You'll and have so higher th- wage. <laughs> that, that's right, yes. And so yeah. in that sense, materialism, the focus on material things, if you want to put that very broadly, is not necessarily bad. The real I, question is, what kind of materialism are we talking about? Right. That's what I really valued your insight on. Um, you know, there's surely you, folks like us gather around the table and, you know, bash materialism and prosperity gospel and Christmas isn't about shopping and all, you know, these typical uh, things that we might say. Materialism has to be bad, right? Um, but I think back to my grandfather, um, who passed away when I was a little girl, but my dad always repeated this thing that he said. And my grandfather, who was a banker and a farmer, a big corporate farmer, um, but a very wise man would always say, money is not the most important thing unless you don't have any. Ah. And that I think is really illuminated in, in your chapter here that materialism is easy to scoff at when you are as privileged as those of us around the table to where we never bat an eye. We know we're going to get dinner tonight. I'm confident that right, all four of right. us are very confident that we will get dinner right. tonight. That's right. Yes. But the Jesus, the people that Jesus was preaching to, they were not confident in that. And so for them, the material world matters a good deal. Um, and so I'm curious what difference you think it makes? What role does privilege and and wealthiness play in the way that we encounter that good news? That's a good question. In in some ways, like like you were saying, it it might isolate us. You know, mm-hmm. uh, this is somebody else's problem. So if right. we are privileged, we might well focus on the spiritual only mm-hmm. because we already have the material stuff. Mm-hmm. But I think uh, those of us who are privileged to some degree should realize that maybe uh, there's a bigger relationship. Mm-hmm. This, this goes back to how people think about individualism. People that have some success, that have some wealth, usually claim that they built this all with their own two hands, right? right? So, so right. the idea of I'm a self-made person, um, but that's of course not really true. So, yeah. so those of us who have some privilege, who have some wealth, would do well to acknowledge who helped us get to that point. And, and the easy points to acknowledge are to say, well, I owe a lot to my parents. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you, no, nobody raised themselves, so you're not an individual right. who was right. came up uh, in the world without support. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can change. Uh, well, you can thank your teachers. You can thank uh, all kinds of other people. You also have to acknowledge that's sort of the more difficult thing that sometimes our wealth is built on the back of other people. Right. So in that sense, those of us who have some. Um, wealth and have some goods should actually acknowledge the relationship that's already in place. Uh, Now, that's very hard to do. And the higher up you go, you'd have to say Mm -hmm. the wealthier somebody is, the more connected they are. Mm -hmm. We think of the wealthiest person as the greatest individual, but Mm -hmm. they're probably the persons that are most connected to everybody. They're connected with so many lives. That's right. And and, and so so you have to take that into account. When you bring that back to uh, Jesus' message that has to do with the poor, uh, will no longer be poor, good news to the poor, uh, you have to take that into account. And then uh, building relationships with poor people, uh, working for the liberation of others, Mm -hmm. is no longer just something that you do out of the goodness of your own heart. You do it because you realize that, that you're connected with them. Suppose I were to say to you, I think Jesus was a pragmatist. Uh. <laughs> okay. Would you be interested in making a response to that? 
I would say uh, Jesus was very pragmatic in, in, in many ways. So, so in the sense, you know, that we understand pragmatism maybe as, as not being interested in bigger questions of life, I don't think that would fit. But I think Jesus had some real pragmatic concerns. Uh, and, and again, if you look at the way he announces um, his mission and ministry in Matthew 11 or in Luke 4, it's very practical, it has to do with, you know, um, healing the sick, raising the dead uh, and preaching good news to the poor uh, and um, release to the oppressed. So, so in that sense, uh, you, you have a lot of very pragmatic things that unfortunately I think that malignant Christianity has either forgotten or suppressed. Uh, let me take this back to the gospel of prosperity. Uh, what, right. What's wrong with it? Uh, yeah. As far as I'm concerned, uh, the fact that there are people thinking about material well-being is not wrong with right. it. But the way it is actually proclaimed is the old winner-take-all thing. So mm -hmm. it has to be done in a certain way. Uh, and of course, there's always a few people who may benefit from it, but I guarantee you this is not a way to raise the masses out of poverty. This is not a way uh, of actually to bring a whole community along into uh, the vision of Jesus. It's always for some individuals. And of course, sometimes it's just for the pastors. That happens too, right? Uh, they get their own private jets and, and everything is fine for them. But, but not for everybody else. So, so the materialism, the material value, the pragmatism that you find in Jesus is something that, that uh, we need to reclaim because it's so different from what we usually think of as focused on material and pragmatic things in life. It makes me think, I mean, it's not about the difference between what Jesus is preaching to the poor and what the prosperity gospel is preaching is that the prosperity gospel is suggesting that we raise up more individuals to become like the wealthy, whereas Jesus is saying, let's pull down the whole system so that we don't have this inequality to begin with. And it is a, a much more radical and dangerous message. And, you know, that, that message today gets um, some resistors from all sides of the aisle, right? One, one iteration of this that we see is that we see um, escapist spiritual type camps that, um, well, I'm not going to get involved in politics, but I, I really love, you know, I'm a very spiritual, but not religious person, that kind of, kind of thing. Um, were there contingents like that in Jesus's day? Were there, um, iterations of religion that really wanted to dematerialize, uh, their religious beliefs mm -hmm. and that resisted Jesus in that way? Probably so. I mean, mm -hmm. Religion is always a complex phenomenon. So in, in Jesus' day, you, you had that too. And when people then talk about the Jews mm -hmm. at Jesus' time, they forget that there were all kinds of right. factions. So so that's certainly the case. Um, more specifically with early Christianity, you had a lot of spirituality that then uh, became dematerialized because it followed sort of other ideas. Mm -hmm. uh, some people call that the Hellenization of Christianity. But I think of it more as sort of a, a privileged way of uh, reshaping Christianity. So it's not just Greek philosophy that does it, but it's a certain perspective of privilege that, mm -hmm. that has the privilege. It's like your grandfather would say, you know, all, all of a sudden, uh, if, if you don't have money, uh, you, you do not have that privilege of, right. of just spiritualizing everything. However, and, and this is the big thing here, when we talk about, um, you know, re, um, really appreciating material reality again, that doesn't mean we're now opposed to spirituality, but we're tying that spirituality very closely and, and 
specifically to um, material well-being. Uh, it becomes a spirituality that's then no longer escapist or otherworldly. Right. One of the big questions uh, I oftentimes say to my students is, um, well, the old question of religion uh, or Christianity has oftentimes been framed as, is there life after death? Mm -hmm. Question right. mark. Mm -hmm. uh, and I often say, well, let's start with asking the question, is there life before death? Yeah. And once yeah, you've asked, answered that question, yeah. I think you don't have to be as worried mm -hmm. about life after death <laughs> as we usually are. But if there's no life before death, uh, mm -hmm. then I would say, you know, this whole life after death question is just an evasion right. of people who can afford to evade. Right. You know, it's funny, as I don't want to preach a revival here, but it is true that you don't find, uh, you know, people who are focused on, on spreading the gospel of good news to the poor in this world, they don't seem to be worried about what's going to happen after they die. They seem to be, I don't know, saved from that, liberated from that tyranny and that fear. And it is really um, a testament to the, the truth of the gospel in that way. Well, and it's troubling because what is my responsibility here? Mm -hmm. What is my responsibility today to my neighbor? Mm -hmm. So, but I want to go back. You, are, you mentioned spirituality. And in your book, um, you, again, I would like to read this uh, sentence. You say, the difference between Jesus and Caesar is that we're dealing with two very different material realities and two very different spiritualities. And then you say that the difference is that we're dealing with um, not only two uh, different material realities, two different spiritualities, but that the gospel portrays, well, I don't want to keep reading, but just elaborate on that a little bit more about what you meant, meant by that. I, I think we, we've touched on that a little bit already uh, in terms of material reality as winner take all, you know, uh, everything gets modeled according to those who we consider successful. Uh, Jesus' material reality is much more focused on the community, uh, the well-being of the least of these. If they can live, we all can live. If they cannot live, we cannot live. Mm -hmm. And spirituality here uh, is, is really tied uh, to those values. So, so uh, salvation then, you know, to use a big theological word, uh, becomes living a flourishing life, mm -hmm. living a life in community, uh, relating to other people, relating to God in the midst of it all. Uh, that's a very different spirituality than the sort of uh, mountaintop spirituality that we sometimes see today, uh, you know, where, where some people that get a little tired uh, with or bored with their everyday life now look for a little spiritual excitement in a retreat or, or in something else. So this spirituality that Jesus proclaims, I'm arguing, is, is one that's directly rooted in life that feeds back into life in life itself and and thereby really reshapes the world so so spirituality becomes very powerful it's not the evasion and it's not the opium for the people as you know the famous philosopher marx once yeah. said mm. or as you reference in the book it's not what the you know romans were doing with the the bread and circuses right this um entertainment for for uh you are, I mean, you're busy, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Keep Roman citizens mm -hmm. busy and distracted. It's so another part of really, it's, yeah. It's, it's another it, part of this malignant religion yeah. where religion then serves a purpose mm -hmm. that maintains the status quo as it is. Right. Absolutely. Well, and David, you just mentioned distraction, and I see that happening today, mm -hmm. not just in this country, but I'm certain all over the world. We um, in our political system. 
there are distractions. So distractions that push emotional buttons Mm -hmm. that... Oh, and not just in our political system. I mean, look at how many channels are on our TV. I mean, we can be distracted all night long, all day, on demand, whatever we want. Um, You never have to pay attention to anything of substance or anything that's worldly for a minute in your life beyond, you know, making sure you have enough to eat to survive. Right. Um, Right. It is, which I think is... so distinct you know we even in the most spiritualized of the gospels most most scholars would agree that that the gospel of john is sort of the most ethereal hellenistic spiritualized of the gospels but john as you point out in your book john opens with a pretty radical down to earth this worldly focus the word became flesh and lived among us Mm -hmm. that's not escapist that's the opposite of that And then if you read on in John, this is the amazing thing about John, using a lot of this more esoteric language, but it's always tied down to earth. So so then the word becomes flesh. Mm -hmm. That's the challenge. And then, you know, chapter three, you talk, um, you know, there's talk about eternal life. And it's very clear eternal life is something that starts here and now. So those who follow Jesus, uh, they have Mm -hmm. this quality. Those who don't, well, they're condemned already, it says in the Gospel of John. And of course, you can assume this this goes on after you die, but the real focal point is not what happens after you die, but what happens here and now. Right, absolutely. But but you can again see this this difference between life-giving and, and malignant mm-hmm. religion that serves as distraction, that serves right. as justifying the status quo, mm-hmm. that serves as, you know, um, confusing people, that, you know, serves in, in so many ways as this mm-hmm. opium for the people. I mean, that was the basic point of that comment. Not that all religion is always that, but unfortunately, a lot of religion is functioning like that. And I think that's what we're seeing in today. And that's what we're trying to not only oppose, but remedy. I mean, the, the, the thing here is not just to complain about something, but to see what the alternative is that's already among us. And to reclaim that gospel of, of this world, that, that valuation of the needs that we see in front of us, that we are not to ignore them and look away toward some heaven, but to, to stay rooted in the here and now, I think it's really... Would it be useful to, not right now, but to have conversations about how religion is a tool I mean, we talk about religion as if it's a thing in itself, but religion is really a kind of mechanism. It's a doorway or, or, so for me, the question is, what are you gonna do with religion? What what are you gonna try to accomplish by being religious? What's the end game? Exactly, that's the whole point of this book, actually. Not to say God, yes or no, Jesus, yes or no, religion, yes or no, but what kind of God, what kind of Jesus, what kind of religion. And not to assume that religion automatically is either a great thing or a horrible thing, but to look at the evidence. So so then you can look at the track record. I gave you a little bit of a track record for malignant religion earlier. Uh, you can also look at the track record of life-giving religion. Mm-hmm. And, and that has a lot to do with, of course, life in community broadly conceived. But you can also show how how religion has oftentimes uh, supported causes that have changed the world. Uh, you know, going back in history, the United States, the civil rights movement, uh, abolitionist movement. Um, what's often forgotten today is that 
religion was also very closely related to the labor movement about a hundred years ago. And that's true even for mainline churches mm -hmm. who today have no memory of this. Okay. So uh, here, uh, if you told the story of this life-giving religion, a lot of people would be really amazed about what happened in our own history in this country and what's happening again today. A um, couple of years ago, a colleague and I wrote a book titled Occupy Religion that was on mm -hmm. the Occupy Wall mm -hmm. Street movement. Yeah. And we basically chronicled and, and draws through some conclusions of religious involvement in the Occupy Wall Street movement. That seemed really important at the time because mm -hmm. nobody had reported on it. This was not something that the news were talking about. Most people weren't aware that there was a connection. Right. But there was a very strong embodiment of life-giving religion. And not just Christianity, other religions were out there as well. And paying attention to that, I think, is really important in our conversation. Absolutely. Yeah, Jörg, um, I want to take us back down a little bit different path because of where, um, where uh, we live in this part of the world. And I have friends that I'll be in conversation with that I have to you know, remove myself somewhat from the conversation. So in your book, you mention uh, something like popular takes on rapture. And that seems to be um, a, 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 a very um, popular um, type of conversation among some of those Christians in this part of the world. Um, so, and I liked, I liked you talking about the rapture. I do want you to kind of relate the rapture to um, this life-giving religion that that uh, you're talking about, materialism, life-giving religion as opposed to malignant religion, and people who hold fast to this concept of the rapture. What's really interesting about this rapture theology is that it's not that old. This is something that came <laughs> up, uh, you know, in well, 19th century theology that was then picked up and brought to this country. And, and now it's marketed big time. But this is something that uh, our religious forefathers and foremothers would not even have known about. Right. You know, talk about Luther and Calvin or John Wesley or or anyone in the Anglican tradition. You, you would not have had these things. And so all of a sudden it pops up. And it's based on basically one verse in the Bible or maybe a couple of parallels that you can dig out. And, and all of a sudden it becomes this great thing. So you wonder why that is. Is this just right. because somebody is really uh, theologically astute, or is this another uh, diversion tactics, you know, right. where, where, where you sort of uh, tell people a certain thing uh, that may or may not happen uh, that also doesn't really have much of a relevance to their life today. This is simply a hope, you know, for whenever it happens. It doesn't change anything you do here and now. So I think this is a really interesting example of how religion oftentimes gets used, and in this case, used without much substance. That, that to me, is the mind-boggling thing. So now we have these big discussions about rapture, yes or no. Uh, there's little substance. There's little historical precedence. It's not something that's deeply rooted anywhere. And all of a sudden, here it is. So, so that would be, I think, a great example of how religion sometimes plays these games. And if you ask, who is that helping? Right. I leave it up to the listeners to think about who wins well, and who loses right, here. It's right. certainly who are the people that wrote Tim left Lahey. behind. Yes. Tim Lahey. That's right. right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, Jerry and obviously, Jenkins. obviously, uh, there are many people who who are inspired or 
helped, or I say helped in quotation marks, are comforted by the idea of a rapture where everything is going to end like it is and be I different? Uh, I mean, I think it does appeal to some folks. Um, if nothing else, I think in the in the most insidious instances, it appeals to people who need that escapism because their life here on earth seems hopeless and the best case scenario is that I might evaporate someday. Um, I think that in more shallow notions it appeals because there are people who want to be able to say I told you so in the afterlife, right? They want to say I was right, you were wrong, Jesus recognized me and scooped me up. Right. (laughs) Um, And but what I really like about your critique of this rapture theology is that um, you aren't saying that what's wrong with it is that it's spiritual. You're, what you're saying is that it's not life-giving, right? So Jesus in the Gospels isn't opposed to the spiritual. We see him engaging um, in this sort of pre-modern notion of spirituality, casting out demons. But casting out demons, as you mentioned in your book, is always linked to also healing a person in this life. The spiritual comes back to the material. The spiritual comes back Mm -hmm. and gets reinvested in the well-being of people here and now. Jesus is not ever reported. I mean, I'm sure someone can go and do their Bible study and prove me wrong, but I can't think of a story in which Jesus is recorded um, or or told the character of Jesus is, is shared to be doing something purely spiritual with no physical and down-to-earth manifestation. I, I think that's the important qualification here. How is your spirituality functioning? What difference is it making? And in the case of this this uh, rapture theology, I, I would raise the question, what, what, what difference is it making? Who is it serving? Uh, but the bigger question then is not, you know, I'm, I'm not that worried about this rapture theology. Let, 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 it, have, let it run its course. The bigger mm. question is, what are we going to do with, with this, you know? Um, great example is, you know, I mean, casting out demons. Uh, That's something that may not fit in our contemporary mindset, Mm -hmm. uh, but it's very clear that there is a clear struggle between good and evil. And if you look at some of these old uh, demon stories, exorcisms that Jesus performs in the gospel, um, there is one situation where the demons are um, named legion. Right. Uh, Right. And what is legion right yeah. uh, if not the occupying army at the time this is not a metaphorical term it's a very clear term and so uh, a lot of these things have to do with what's happening in real life uh, that's the same for the miracles uh, this is not just you know doing miraculous acts but actually signs of god's power to change the world here and now in in ways that people could not imagine and so, so here uh, the big question is, you know, where where are we looking for these things? Where are we looking for miracles? Where are we looking for, you know, uh, struggles um, against evil and and sin? Well, and it's so much more poetic. I mean, you just look at that Legion story. If you if you take the gospel as more than literal, and you understand that that Jesus is rebuking a demon called Legion there, but in doing so is poetically speaking back to the God of Caesar is poetically condemning that empire. Um, taking that poetically does liberate us to look around us and say, you know, what what is the poetry in the earth and the down-to-earth life that we lead now? And how can we speak back to the, the malignant religion of the empire that is encroaching in our own lives? And I think that that's a really um, wonderful challenge to, to send us with today. 
So our Faith and Reason 360 podcasts, again, are free to all listeners. However, we do welcome donations. And remember, uh, there isn't a donation that could be possibly too small. A dollar, five dollars, five hundred dollars, if you happen to have that, would be just simply great. Uh, visit our website at faithandreason.org, F-A-I-T-H-A-N-D-R-E-A. S-O-N dot org. And I also want to remind our listeners about Jorg's book, uh, Dr. Jorg Rieger. His book is available online at Amazon.com. Um, that is, when you're looking for that, look for Jesus versus Caesar by Jorg Rieger. J-O-E-R-G-R-I-E-G-E-R. And I want to thank Jorg. Uh, for Thank being you. here. Thank you for and having me. for David as hosting with us. This program has been produced by Faith and Reason, a program of the D.L. Dykes Jr. Foundation. God chose Israel, remembering mercy, according to the promise to those he made before, to Sarah, to Abraham, to Hagar, to their children's children. Evermore.